Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm definitely sure we'll both feel better after talking about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. Today, I'm so happy to be talking to my friend, Anna Whiston Donaldson. Anna, unfortunately, knows way too much about the issue of grief after losing her mom at just 18 years old and her son, Jack, when he was just 12 years old. After his death, Anna went from using her blog to document the everyday little occurrences to grieving her son and facing life without him. She writes with authenticity and grace and humor and publicly speaks on those topics as well. She's also the author of Rare Bird, which is a gift to anyone struggling with their grief. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to see you. Hi, Jill. I would love to start today with a story about Jack. I so appreciated when you wrote about him after he died, the way you kept his memory alive with real stories, really encompassing his personality and and who he really was and not putting him up on a a pedestal. You just, you really wanted to keep him alive. So I would just love to hear something about, about Jack and who he was. Okay. I was thinking about this and Uh, this is not an all encompassing story, but I was thinking about what made it so fun to have Jack in our family. And, um, a lot of it was just how he could sort of keep himself entertained, but also entertain the people around him. And, uh, I think that his quirkiness is what did that. And so I was thinking today about something that popped up on my camera roll recently, which was all these pictures of a cantaloupe in weird places around the house, around the yard. And I'm thinking, (laughs) you know, I wasn't there, but for some reason, you know, Jack probably pulled his little sister, Margaret, into this weird thing, which is let's have a photo shoot with a cantaloupe. So (laughs) I know. Because why not? Right. And so there were pictures (laughs) of this cantaloupe inside the dishwasher, um, out (laughs) on a baseball tee, in the, you know, like the crook of a tree, (laughs) just in a dollhouse. And so I don't know. It's amazing. I don't know if it's a good example, but it's just. <laughs> I love it. Really. None of my children have ever hidden a cantaloupe anywhere. Okay. <laughs> any piece of produce. I have never, never found documentation of any piece of produce anywhere on my phone. <laughs> so I love it. Well, you know, Jill, it's like when you and I were growing up, if we had taken, you know, 30 pictures of a cantaloupe, we probably would have gotten in trouble because, you know, you don't waste the film, right? Um, oh my goodness. No, one picture would have been punishment. Right. So that would have been a very precious piece of Polaroid. Yes. <laughs> I grew up in a household yes. where there was actually a rule. People had to be in every single picture because I think my mom had had too many pictures of like, you know, a gerbil in, you know, and that, you know, you get your one precious roll back and it's like a picture of a gerbil or something like that. So, oh, God forbid it's a finger, you know, blocking the, right? <laughs> the camera. What an utter waste those were. They totally were. So Jack was just uh, fun. He wasn't like fun in the sense that he was always, you know, up and happy and cheery. He was fun in like a quirky, um, just a very pleasant, uh, way that he just sort of brought us all into his world, whether it was like his classmates where he would make up weird challenges for them, or I'm sure it annoyed the teachers. I know it did, but, you know, like coming up with a, his own 
words and they would all come into this world. And that was really cool to see because he didn't have a, a broad impact in that. He didn't have a lot of friends. He went to a small school. He really was a homebody. But I think when he was in relationship with people that he brought them into his world, which is really fun. He definitely had a sparkle in his eye. He looked like one of those kids. Yeah. Yeah. So take me back to that day in September that changed everything. Sure. I, I, you know, I will preface this Jill. um, And of course I know, you know, the story because you've been with me for it all along. But when I do talk about this, I have the luxury of having this have been a long time ago. So my ease in talking about it really didn't come right away. Of course, Um, I am comfortable talking about it now, but I'm just saying that in case there are people listening who are like, you know, how could a mom just tell this story? So matter of fact, like it's, it's really because of the, it's because of time that I'm able to do that. And let me preface this by saying I am incredibly uncomfortable talking about this and I am shaking. So I don't, I don't ask these questions flippantly and, you know, we've talked about these beforehand. So I am not, um, I, I, you know, this is obviously an incredibly sensitive subject and I'm so appreciative that you are opening up about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, in 2011, it was the second day of school. So my kids had, uh, you know, we were sort of transitioning from summer, no schedules, et cetera, to being back in school. And so I brought my kids home from school that day and they were doing their homework around the kitchen table. And then Well, I need to start this by saying there had been this soaking, soaking warm rain going on for days at this point. What we didn't know was that it was a a weather system that was a tropical storm coming, but we didn't know that. We just knew that it had been raining for days. And so my kids, we came home, they were doing their homework and having a snack at the kitchen table and the power went out, which always happened in our neighborhood. And so we really had fun with it and we lit candles and we were just laughing and joking that they couldn't, you know, go try to get on the computer or anything like that. Like we were just in the moment together. Well, about an hour later, the uh, other kids in the neighborhood got off of school and got off their bus and they were just soaking and having a wonderful time as they made their way to their houses. Well, they, um, a couple of the kids came to our kitchen door where we were where we were and they banged on the door and they were soaking wet and just so happy. And they asked if Jack and Margaret, Margaret, um, Jack was 12 and Margaret was 10, if they could go out and play. And I'm like, absolutely. Like I had such wonderful memories of playing in the rain as a kid and just tromping around. I mean, those are some that really stick with you. So I said, absolutely. I remember that day. It was like an extra fun, like summery day. It was like, you were a good mom for doing that. Right. And it was just, it it felt very celebratory, you know, back to school. Mm -hmm. I had one friend who was up at the top of the cul-de-sac. It was her daughter's birthday. And she had set up a little, um, you know, one of those little awning things that you use for sporting events. And she had cupcakes on a table there. We were all just really having a good time that day. And so I let my kids go out and play and they started to head down our long driveway to the cul-de-sac and uh, they just got soaked instantly. It was actually like a really warm warm rain. And so uh, my last view I saw of the kids all together was just them laughing. And um, my son, Jack just raised his hands up to the sky and just like spun around and was just smiling so big and laughing. 
And uh, then they made their way down to the cul-de-sac and I could just see them in and out of my view, just splashing and sloshing around and having a good time. And I actually thought, wow, isn't it great that these kids are at this age where they can just like really bond in the neighborhood. I am like out of the rough part of parenting where I have to be on them at every second. It was felt very, it just was a nice moment. And I, you know, relaxed, I opened a magazine, I changed into my comfy clothes from my work clothes and uh, just enjoyed the moment. And then a while later, I heard thunder and I was like, well, we got to go get the kids. Right. So even though I knew they were just down in the cul-de-sac, I decided to take my car because I don't want to get soaking. So I go from my house into my car, nice and dry in my little carport And I go down the driveway and I don't see the kids. So I'm like, hmm, because my kids really stuck tight to that cul-de-sac usually. So I start pulling up the street, a couple houses, like two houses. And I see my little 10-year-old Margaret walking towards me. So I pull the car up to her. I roll down the window. Hey, you know, where's Jack? And she climbs in the car, soaking wet, her little Snoopy t-shirt. And she says, He's in so-and-so's backyard, which was a backyard right there. And it was a yard I had never been in before because the people who had lived there had older children, but now a younger family had moved in. And so, and that was one of the kids that they were playing with. So I just stopped the car. I let her stay in there and kind of drip, drip, drip dry. And I went to the backyard where this, um, you know, where the kids had been playing and the mom of the house had all of her windows open and she leaned out because as I said, it was a warm day. And she said, Jack's not down there. And I'm like, yes, he is. Margaret just told me he is. And all this is taking place just quick, quick, quick. So instead of continuing to talk, I just walked down the slope of the backyard and it was really wild because as I said, I'd never been in that backyard before. And so I knew in my head that there was our neighborhood Creek down there. But it had never crossed my mind that this little, you know, like a little trickle dry creek bed that we usually saw, that it was just like this raging, like river, it felt like. (laughs) So I see two kids there and not Jack. So I knew that Margaret had just left this yard less than a minute before. And so I just screamed at the kids, where's Jack? And they said, in the river, in the river. (laughs) So they saw it as a river too. And I just saw, you know, white foam and brown, muddy water and branches. And I mean, it was just a crazy sight that I saw. And I instantly knew that it was unsurvivable. Of course, the kids didn't know they were little kids. They thought it was funny, but I instantly knew it wasn't survivable. But I also knew as a mom, I had to do something. And then I was torn because I'm always this person that just sort of like, wants to do the right thing. And I'm sometimes too concerned with like looking crazy or whatever. I'm calm in a crisis, but this is like a crisis of just epic proportions. So I I just yelled at them, look for him, look for him. And I started running up and down the bank and getting tangled in um, briars and my flip-flops are falling off. And I didn't really know what to do next, but what I did was I, you know, came back up the hill, yelled for some neighbors. And then I hopped in the car and decided to go looking for him. 
because I just knew for some reason that if I left my neighborhood, that right outside my neighborhood was a place that this Creek would go under the road. And for some reason I knew that's where he was. So I got in the car and Margaret can tell I'm being erratic and I'm saying, it's okay. It's okay. When, I mean, I wasn't being very believable, of course. And I start pulling outside of my neighborhood just to go to this place and all the cars are backed up because electricity is out everywhere and traffic is snarled and it's become this big thing that, you know, I hadn't been aware of just 30 minutes before. And instead of going to that place, because Margaret was starting to freak out, I just turned around and came back into the neighborhood and, you know, we called 911 and help came, but it was too late. So I just calmly went home to wait with my daughter and with neighbors who were coming. Uh, before that, you know, I had just been in the grass kneeling and praying and telling people around me to pray. And I did talk to the uh, rescue people when they came and I was getting so impatient. You know, those rescue shows where they always tell you, calm down. And, you know, and I just wanted to be like, I'm not going to fucking calm down. And so, um, and I was calm, like almost eerily calm, but it was just very frustrating. And eventually I went back to the house to wait because they told me to. And a couple hours later, we found out that Jack had been found where I thought he was and um, that he didn't, that he died. So that just threw us into this horrible reality when your life is just one way, one minute, and then, you know, completely changes. It's the worst possible thing in the world. That's it. There's nothing worse. Yeah, it was. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I mean, it's, it, Thank you. Is that, is that the wrong thing to say? After, I mean, is it the wrong thing to say at the time? And then after all these years, because it's not insincere, but it feels stupid to say. So Jill, I try to really uh, use my work and use my time to demystify grief. And I try to help equip people to help other people who are grieving and even help grievers sort of advocate for what they need. And I have run across a few people that don't like the words, I'm so sorry. But honestly, Jill, I, and I'm no expert at this because I still have those awkward feelings. You know, when it's not my story, when I'm trying to help someone else, I still feel awkward. I still feel at a loss. But that is my go-to is to say, I'm so sorry, because honestly, I am so sorry. Exactly. I mean, it's how you feel. It's it's not, I heard you, there was a conversation, I think it was on Glennon's, Glennon Doyle's podcast um, about not saying you can't imagine because you can't, you can imagine as a mother, the pain of losing your child is the worst imaginable pain. And it's, you, you don't want to think about it, but right. that's, that's where you have to go when you want to empathize with someone. Yes. So you are, you can't be sorrier for them because it, it's not that you pity them. I mean, it's just that you, you feel so terrible that they have this burden in their life to bear and you, you don't wish that upon anyone. Yeah, so. I, I definitely, I, <sighs> I still say I'm so sorry because I just really am. And uh, other things that I say are, I, I don't have the right words to say, but I'm mm -hmm. here 
and I'm not going anywhere. You know, there's mm-hmm. some, some positive things that you can say just to sort of show that you are in it with someone. And I know we're going to talk about yeah. that a little more later, but yeah. when you say, I'm so sorry, Jill, to me, even all these years after Jack dying, I know that you truly are. And you wish that this hadn't happened to our awesome son and to our family. Good, good. Well, I'm glad because that's always been something I, I wondered. Um, and the way I know you is through blogging and you kept writing so beautifully throughout this experience um, immediately throughout. And I'm wondering, wondering if you can just talk about how, why that was and what you got through the writing experience and what the community gave back to you. Sure. Um, I love talking about this because, I mean, maybe it seemed unusual that I just kept blogging. I I knew I had to show up to my blog and let people know what had happened to Jack because they'd been following along as I told, you know, little silly stories about my kids and about real life and, you know, the messiness and all that. So I showed up out of sort of an obligation to let people know what was going on. Well, then they were showing up, of course, to support me. And um, that became a huge lifeline for me. I was writing about what was happening, but then I was getting all this support. And what I was really getting was acknowledgement, right? About this being this terrible, terrible thing that happened. And that, you know, kept me going. I would show up to show that I was not okay, right? But I would show up to show that I was, you know, breathing, functioning, whatever. They would show up to give me support. And it was just, it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing. And as a result, what ended up happening was people were getting a view of grief in real time that you don't often get because a lot of Mm -hmm. times people are like writing books about grief and it's 10 years later. You know, if I were to write a book right now about grief and about Jack, you know, going to heaven, it would be a very different book than what I wrote back then blogging as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think there's beauty in both, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. And once I realized that at first it was just to keep me going, right? They would show up, I would write, thinking I was giving something to them, but really they were giving something to me. No, I, I you know, makes sense. and then eventually I found out that my words were helping dem- demystify grief. Um, and once I found out that I was somehow helping, then I was all in because to me that is fuel. And so that helped, helped me keep showing up. And now that's what you do. Yeah. 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 And what about in person? It's, you know, it's one thing to show up online and offer support that way, but in person, you know, it's very easy to ask, what can I do? Mm -hmm. But it's a little ambiguous and it's harder to sort of how do you how do you make a plan? What's what are tangible ways that people helped you and can continue to show up in person without being overbearing and annoying? Right, right. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I will say that with COVID, the past couple of years, it's been really hard for people to support grievers in some of the traditional ways. So when I talk about some things that people have done for us you know, we have to realize this is pre-COVID. And so people could really show up in person a lot more. Uh, And I think we need to remember that that level of grief support in some ways has been, you know, missing the past couple of years. I'm hoping that will, 
you know, get better. But um, yeah, the online support was amazing. And even through, you know, real life friends, but through Facebook, text, things like that. But as far as people showing up in a physical way, you know, there's the stuff you think about right away, like the food, um, people just coming to your house. Will you ever eat like another casserole again? <laughs> it's funny because it's funny because the actual, you know, I don't think I ate any of it. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. I mean, I had to remind myself to take a sip of water. People don't realize they get completely dehydrated as grievers because they're crying and they're not even having a sip of water. So that is something to remember. It helps if there's someone there saying, take a sip. I was going to say, maybe that's something useful that somebody can do is actually literally remind you to keep drinking water. There are ways to be present and to be so helpful. We had people who, you know, flew in from all over to come to this memorial service. It really freaks me out now to think about that. You know, we found out Jack was dead on a Thursday night and by Monday we were already having a funeral. It's just crazy to think about now um, because just all of this is happening while we're in complete shock. There was absolutely no preparation for this, but we, we, we did. And people had tangible ways that, that, you know, they showed up. They, it's such a sacrifice for people to take off work and like come across the country and go to a funeral. And even though, and they're not going to get credit for it because you're in such shock that you don't even really know who was there or not. But it's just, there's something about that that just is such a a sign of support. And Mm -hmm. I, uh, I really value that. I think it makes a difference. And so that was something. And of course, people showing up with the tangible needs like food or helping you find clothes for the funeral. Uh, I remember when my mom died that, you know, I had glasses and I guess, and my mom died suddenly and my glasses snapped in half. And I just had a friend come and take my broken glasses and go to the optometrist, pick me out some frames, get those lenses, you know, put in and brought them back to me because there was no contact lenses. Yeah. No contact lenses when I'm crying so much. Right. So that's impressive that at 18, a friend knew to do that, to take care of something that simple, but that's really impressive. Isn't that almost shocking? Yes. Like I want to be that level. I want to be that level of compassionate. Yes. That's yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's tangible things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say there's tangible things. That was one that, I mean, here we are, it has been like 30 something years and I still remember that. So all of this. No, that's a great story. I love that. Yeah. I would say that. And I mean, I feel bad because my mom was a florist and she was an amazing florist, but I hear time and time again, that people overdoing it on the flowers is not super helpful. Noted. It might be different okay. um, for different cultures or for different ages of the person who died, like maybe if it's expected. But for me, I got to tell you, and please don't think I'm not being appreciative. I wouldn't have known this until later that it was really hard for me to have a house full of flowers that would eventually all die. It's so depressing. It was when hard. You yeah. Think about it. Yeah. It's like the worst act of sympathy you could possibly give someone. It's horrible. Right. I mean, I feel terrible. My mom was a florist and she made beautiful creations. But my suggestion would be Ooh. to send those later. Mm-hmm. Do it. Just send it later. Um, okay. Other tangible needs. You know, we had somebody, he put his uh, lawnmower in the car and just came over to our house and just mowed our lawn. 
Wonderful. Yeah. And Jack was our lawnmower at the time. He had just turned 12. And so that was like a big rite of passage. And so a, you know, this guy just took care of it. Our, he was a very good friend without even asking, without, you know, expecting to be thanked, but also, you know, when you are newly grieving, sometimes you feel very exposed. Mm-hmm. So the act of my husband um, having to go out there and mow the grass or me going out there and having to mow the grass, you just feel like such an alien and such a weirdo and just, you feel exposed. And so that allowed us to not have to sort of be out there exposed as the grieving parents mm-hmm. mowing the lawn. So that was really helpful. Uh, other people helped by offering to take our daughter places in those first few days because mm. children grieve differently and they need breaks from it and, and they need to see some normalcy. I will say that not every thing you do to help is going to, is going to be helpful and mm-hmm. some things are going to fall flat. My daughter who was terrified, who was playing with her brother and then he's dead she needed a level of care that could only come from people who knew her very well. And so she only felt safe, you know, going to Michael's to make a t-shirt or going to the park. She, she needed people she knew very well and trusted. Mm -hmm. And so some things we had to say no to, if it was someone she didn't know that well, who, who felt compelled to reach out and try to help, but it wasn't a good fit for our daughter. And so I will say that when we do offer to help, some things will fall flat and that's okay. You're not doing it because you're the expert at the right thing. You're trying to see what will be helpful and some things are and some things aren't. And it's so individual. Let me give you an example. I just thought of this. Um, Someone in our neighborhood, a a friend who wasn't that close of a friend, but is now a very close friend, decided to tie these royal blue ribbons around mailboxes in our neighborhood. Well, then because of social media, it took off and people all of our town hung these ribbons on their mailboxes or trees. And it was funny because like blue wasn't even Jack's favorite color. His favorite color was chartreuse. So, you know, not everyone would know (laughs) that. So she did that and it became like this touch point where, you know, we would drive around and we'd see a mailbox and we'd think, oh, someone remembers. Mm -hmm. Oh, we don't even know the people that live in that house and they remember. It was amazing. And I've got to tell you, 10 years later, there's some people who still have those raggedy blue ribbons on their mailboxes. Oh, that's so sweet. And we don't expect it out of obligation. It's just amazing. Well, I say this not to complicate things too much, but I know of a girl whose dad died suddenly. She was a young teen and her neighborhood did something very similar with orange ribbons and she felt too exposed. Mm. So something that might be very helpful to one person would not be as helpful to another. And I know that's hard to hear, but that's definitely my experience. And so I think that asking if there's anything you need is not super helpful because there's no way the griever can even formulate a thought. But what could be helpful is, hey, some, some of us are thinking about doing X, Y, and Z in honor of your loved one. How does that sound to you? Do you think that that would have sounded like a good idea to you before it was done? That's a great question because I was like, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know what I, I Mm -hmm. don't even know if I could formulate a thought, but I think, I think, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Or once it's been done, hey, I was wondering how you feel about Right. Before it gets blown out on a massive scale. At this time, I worked at a bookstore and a woman came into the bookstore and she was just like ready to talk to me. And she said, I see these blue ribbons all over Vienna and I just want people to take them down. I bet that reminds you every day that Jack died. So she was- (laughs) As if you need reminding? Exactly. So she was really concerned. And what I told her was, to our family, it feels like a hug every time. So there's no one size fits all. And sometimes it's messy, but you know what, when someone has tried to care for us, I really feel like the intention comes through. If the intention is for somehow them to make it all about themselves and their pain and they feel terrible because their dog died. So they know exactly how I feel because my son died, you know, (laughs) that doesn't feel very good. But there's a lot of grace in the missteps as long as the intention feels pure. And that's a beautiful thing. It does come through. So I don't want people to get so worried about like what not to say, what not to do, but instead just to sort of stay open, uh, be teachable, listen, keep asking, don't disappear. And then I feel like the intention will come through every time. I think that's super valuable. Thank you for that. Otherwise, we'd be paralyzed with fear, wouldn't we? About not even trying to support people because we're so concerned about saying the wrong thing. I'm paralyzed with fear all the time. So (laughs) yes, I think think that's correct. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your husband, Tim, and just what his grief looked like. You had your writing, you had your community. Um, I think grief looks so different for men and and they're so different in terms of how much they open up and what their community looks like. So what was his experience like? Yeah. It's so interesting in a family because you are all grieving the death of the same person, but your individual relationships with that person are different. And the way that you grieve is going to be different. I feel like having had my mom die more than 20 years before this, uh, which was horrible. I feel like it already clued me in to the fact that people are going to grieve differently because my dad grieved differently. My brother, my sister, and I did. And so I think I already knew that, which is awesome because otherwise I think I would have just really had a hard time with the way my husband and I were reacting to Jack's death. So anyway, I'm glad I already knew that. And it allowed me to show him a lot of grace and vice versa. You know, like he never said, why are you writing about all this stuff on the internet? Mm -hmm. Right? Like he, he knew that was helping me. And so I could see things that I knew were helping him and not get completely annoyed. And uh, it was completely different because I've always been an extrovert. And yet I pulled very, very inward in a one-on-one, you know, way about this. Mm-hmm. In other words, I still had my internet stuff, but then I was alone a lot. I pulled very inward. I was very introspective. I wanted to know what heaven was like because, you know, I barely even let um, Jack go to a sleepover, right? But I need to know what heaven's like because he's there. And I mean, if anybody had a near-death experience, I want to know about it. I want to read about it. Well, that did not interest my husband at all. My husband really responded well to people inviting us out to do things 
if there was a party, he was there. If there was some sort of gathering, he was there. And he went from being a very introverted person who had maybe one or two good friends at the time to sort of having a much wider social circle. There were so many people in our town, right? Surprising, right? That's a really interesting reaction. Yeah. I don't relate to that at all. Me either. But it felt so good for him. And so we, you know, we don't talk a lot, like we've never talked a lot. But what I got from that was he wanted to be busy and doing. He wanted a distraction. Mm -hmm. And this provided him with a distraction. And then it also gave him good, good friends in the process. I did not want a distraction. That makes sense. I wanted to be in it. I wanted to feel my pain, process it, think about it. And I only wanted people around me who were willing to, they didn't have to talk about it, but just sort of like acknowledge it and be there. He could actually get a break from it. And he enjoyed that break. It didn't really mean he was running away from his grief. And I think that if I hadn't already had gone through grief before, I think I would have thought he was running away from it, but it gave him, it gave him a break. So, you know, here we are just a few months after Jack dies and he's at a Mardi Gras party and he's doing this and doing that. And I think in my book, I talk about how like he went over to a new friend in the neighborhood's house and they made sausages together. I'm like, who makes sausage? Like that's what was that hard to see? Was that, were you resentful about that? Not really. Not really. And that was because of the gift of already having some perspective. And I'm Mm -hmm. really glad that I wasn't super mad about it because I just, I just wasn't. And you already have enough working against you as a couple because you are just so destroyed. Yeah. And I also wanted to show him grace because he showed me grace. I'm the one that let our kids go out and play that day. He showed me grace. He never once brought it up again in an argument. He never threw it in my face. And anyway, I showed him grace and he showed me grace. And we just really approached our grief completely differently. And we didn't grieve a lot together. Like we didn't talk about our pain a lot together. We did start going to a therapist like every two weeks in the beginning. And it was just sort of a check-in. Okay. What are we going to do about Christmas? What are we going to do about Jack's birthday? Like it was just like a forced conversation And, um, you know, I'm a huge believer in therapy and I think that helped us talk because we're not big talkers with each other. Mm -hmm. And another thing that really helped us was my blog. Okay. Because some stuff felt too intimate to talk to him about yet. I would write about it. You were very honest on your blog. Right. But then he would read it and know where I was like emotionally. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that sounds weird, but that's, you know, so he, I knew he would read it and that, that's a nice gateway to communicate. It was a nice gateway. <laughs> it was, it was. So those are some ways that we grieved differently. Even today, yeah. he is still more social than I am. And I'm still more inward than I used to be because grief changes you. I'm sure it does. I think the most fascinating thing um, I've heard you say is that you don't ruminate on Jack's death, which I would love to to end the conversation by just asking you how, because I think that would be so, I think that's so 
I just would love to know how you do that. And just to not obsess and ruminate all the time and not get wrapped up in, in that because I, I do that with the tiniest things, never mind the largest thing of all. You know, Jill, um, I ruminate over tons of things in life. Like, oh my gosh, where to have a kid kid go to school? And I will like have insomnia about it. And I will make lists and go crazy over the tiniest details. So I'm saying that just to say that I too get really, really, really wrapped up about the little things. And it has been amazing that I do not ruminate over the details of Jack's death. To me, that comes from outside of myself. That comes from God. It comes from knowing that when people die, that they are free from pain and suffering. Uh, It helped that there were people in my life at the time who were very spiritual and they were able to say to me, he did not suffer. He was not scared. Mm-hmm. What more does a mother need to know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I chose to believe that. And that helped a lot. I will say that a lot of people have a lot of trauma over, you know, traumatic deaths like this. And something that has worked for a lot of people that I know is something called EMDR which is like a rapid eye movement kind of therapy. And it helps to, in a safe setting, it helps them to sort of re-see the trauma, but then I've never done it before, but sort of move through it. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't take the grief away. I'm talking about just the traumatic incident and the rumination. Mm -hmm. So I've heard Mm -hmm. a lot of grieving parents have had success with that. And that makes me very happy that that's out there. Okay. So I can't really explain why I don't ruminate over this because as my daughter says, she's 20 now, she's like, you're the most anxious person I know, you know? So I do have anxiety over things. Sometimes I do worry about things, but this particular thing, I don't. And I think it's because I'm somehow free from that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I believe that those who die, not just my son. I mean, those who die are okay. In fact, they're better than okay. We're the ones that are back here and we're struggling, but they're not struggling. Also, I know that my Jack does not want me to carry guilt and pain over what happened to him. Now, I don't want you, Jill, saying, oh, Jack wouldn't want you to feel that way. That's not helpful having someone else tell me that. But if I can come to that conclusion inside myself, then that's very Mm -hmm. life-giving. That makes sense. Okay, I have one final question. You have Andrew, who is the cutest, (laughs) such a cute little child. And he looks so much like Jack. He has that same little twinkle in his eye and... What is it like shopping for little boy clothes and little boy trucks? And it must be so bittersweet. Is he, is his personality similar to Jack? Is it, is he, does he have the same, you know, little, little quirks and stuff? Or are they, despite looking the same, are they totally different? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I, you know, for those who don't know, 
when I was 46, I thought I was like in full-blown menopause. And then via a Dollar Tree pregnancy test, because all pregnancy- Best blog posts yes. ever. <laughs> well, pregnancy tests, I got to say this, they are the same amount of accurate, whether you buy it for $14.99 or a dollar. So if anybody needs one, I say go to the Dollar Tree because it'll work just as well. Great PSA. Yes. So anyhow, 46 menopausal or so I thought, and I find out I'm pregnant. And then that was a shocker. And, but it did have a real feeling of, well, I guess it was meant to be, you know, I mean, it's not like these people are having a lot of sex. This woman has a very old system. So it really helped me to be like, okay, I guess it was meant to be, let me embrace this. So then we find out, you know, pretty early on, you find out early these days that it was a boy. So it's like, hmm, that's interesting. And then, of course, when he shot out in April of 2016, he looked exactly like his brother, which was interesting and wild and cool. So it's been quite an interesting road. You know, I am 52. I really thought I would be an empty nester at 49. Yet I'm starting all over again with this little guy. So it's 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 been interesting, but I do always try to remind myself that I think it was meant to be. For me, it really helps to think that I am not in control and that I don't have to be in control of everything. It's very, um, I don't know, that that relieves me. Anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, so we have a little Andrew and he does not look exactly like Jack now. But the genes are strong, you know, and it's been pretty amazing. And I don't like the idea of, you know, I wrote about this early on. I'm like, this is, he does not replace Jack. That is too much of a burden on this little guy, right? I would never wish that upon a child. And I've actually had someone write in to me on Facebook, a man who was probably in his 50s. And he was really, really upset when he found out about Andrew. And it turns out that this man was born, his birthday was the, was exactly two years after his brother had died or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like his brother was two and his brother died. And then two years later, this little guy was born. Well, now he's 50 and he still carries a lot of pain at being sort of seen as this replacement child. Mm -hmm. He, and I don't know how his family handled it. I do know that he said every birthday was just tinged with sadness because it was really about his brother and not about him. So anyway, it's complicated, but I will say that I never want Andrew to feel like that. I always wanted a third child, but I was too scared. Yeah. I thought I was too old at like 33, I know. And Jack would say, (laughs) yeah, Jack would say, you're not too old. And then I thought I was too old at 38. And I thought I was too old at 40. And then 41, right before Jack died, when are you going to have another one? And I'm like, I'm too old. He said, well, if you'd had a baby when you thought you were too old at 39, you'd already have a baby by now, right? Oh, Ugh, I know. So instead we had Andrew at 46 and he is very cute. He is 
darling, it's hard because we're old. It's hard because he's the only child in the house right now. You're not quite as old as you make yourself look in your Instagram <laughs> pictures sometimes. <laughs> I will say that. That's because you're used to seeing people with filters and I am like, oh, <laughs> unfiltered. Did you see what I posted yesterday? Oh my gosh. Yes, I did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but everybody has pictures like that. Okay, you good. You look much better than that. Because I only see <laughs> yes, I just my own. I wouldn't dare post my pictures like that. No. Okay. I had a very unfortunate experience this morning with the, you know, the picture when you don't realize oh. you're your phone is swapped. It was not it's the it worst. Not. It's like chin, it chins was, for days. It was chins for days. And it was first thing in the morning. And it's just not what you need no. for your self-esteem no. early in the morning. It just set the whole day on a no. sad, sad tone. Oh, I can so <laughs> relate. But anyway, yes, so it's but, been a challenge, but my goal is to not ever make him feel less than mm-hmm. um, or more than. What I mean by that is, and I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, I don't want him to think that he came here to save this family from grief. Right? Like, why would you? I can't put that on a kid, right? Yeah, it's way too much pressure. Um, I think it helps that I did want a third child, but never enough to actually do anything about it. So Mm -hmm. I can honestly say to him, like, I can be very truthful in that. Another thing is, you know, kids are not responsible for our happiness. And we're not supposed to make them think that they are because that's, it's not healthy. You know, they're not here to parent us or to save us. Now, all that aside, I will tell you, you asked me about like shopping for little boy clothes and stuff. After Jack died, there were so many minefields that were so painful to navigate. Like the grocery store is one that you hear grievers talk about the most because like you walk down the aisle and you don't need to buy pickles anymore or you don't need to buy Reese's Puffs or whatever it was that your loved one loved. And before you know it, you are just weeping in the grocery store, Mm. fleeing, leaving carts full of groceries. Like it is so hard. Target can be like that too. I would walk through boys' sections. Um, I don't shop that much. I pretty much only go to a thrift store. But at my thrift store, that was really hard. I'd be like, oh, I used to always buy, you know, Jack's uniform pants there, or I won't need that toy anymore. These are things that naturally happen as kids get older and you get nostalgic for these things. But this was much more than that because it was this abject grief. And I will say that now it's fun for me to buy little boy clothes again to get the best deal on that game at the thrift store and like wipe the sponge off of it and bring it home to play with Andrew. <laughs> so it's been very re- redeeming, but, um, but I don't want to put all that pressure on him because he's not here to heal me. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just here to play with the D sponge oh. game that you thrifted. <laughs> yes. And hello, COVID and being the only kid in the house, I am basically like, I'm his main playmate. And that has been, Oh my goodness. Like it's one thing having a kid 17 and 19 years later, but it is another when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you are their playmate. It has been interesting. (laughs) That is is a layer of exhaustion that I um, am just not equipped for at this point in my life. I, I, there is a reason. Well, there are many reasons why I'm not with child right now, but yes, I could not. Yes. I want, I want kudos is all I'm saying. Like I want some sort of extra credit for this. 
I think every single person who listens to this is applauding you for a plethora of reasons, but yes, for surviving a pandemic with a child, young child. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely top. Yeah. It. Well, Anna, thank you so, so much. It was, I'm so happy you're here. It was lovely to see you. And I'm so grateful that you gave us this time and me this time. It is always great to see your face. It's great to hear your voice. I'm so glad that you're putting yourself out here again, and I'm here for it a million percent. And I just want to say, I appreciate the fact that you were willing to just jump in and talk about grief because none of us, right? None of us gets out of here without grieving. And so it really helps to sort of get it out there to show that people need acknowledgement. I think that's the key because when grief goes unacknowledged, that's when our pain just grows and grows and we just dig into our pain and stay there forever. So thank you for just like putting it out there. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today and come back next week for another issue. She's Got Issues is produced by Kristen Kelbley, Gwen Sound, Kira Shine, and me, Jill Smokler. Please do us a favor and rate and review the podcast and tell a friend because she's got issues too.